welcome to the Amor Mundi podcast from the Hannah Arendt Center for Politics and Humanities at Bard College. Amor Mundi means love of the world. We are here to explore ways of thinking together and loving the world in the spirit of Hannah Arendt. During the social isolation of the coronavirus, the Amor Mundi podcast will speak with writers, scholars, and activists in a series called Thinking the Plague. This is episode seven, The Thrill of Democracy. It features the Arendt Center's founder and director, Roger Berkowitz, in a conversation with Olivia Guaraldo, a political thinker, professor of political thought, and director of the Hannah Arendt Center at the University of Verona in Italy. So hello, my name is Roger Berkowitz. I'm the founder and academic director here at the Hannah Arendt Center at Bard College. And I'm thrilled today to be speaking on the Amor Mundi podcast with Professor Olivia Guaraldo from the University of Verona, where she's the professor of political theory in the Department of Human Sciences and the director of the Hannah Arendt Center for Political Studies. Welcome, Olivia. Hello. Hello, Roger. Thank you. It's, uh, it's great to hear from you. I haven't seen you since I was in Italy last year, but a lot has happened in the world. And I'm in New York City and you're in Verona, both in lockdown. Just tell us a little bit about what happened and, and how you've been living in this lockdown time. Yes. Well, it's, um, it's a situation that has been going on now here for at least a month, a little bit more than a month. And we are sort of trying, well, not trying, but we are getting used to it, strangely. We have our daily routine in the house. My kids, they have online lectures and I, I teach uh, online. We have meetings online. So it, it is somehow interesting and also strange to see and also to experience how easily we can adjust to to new situations. And um, of course, uh, in our region, which is northern Italy, the, um, the death toll is still high. Um, a lot of elderly people are dying. And one of the saddest things of these deaths is that uh, no relatives uh, can see their loved ones uh, right before or even after they uh, die. And so there is a total or a cultural uh, shock in these terms because people cannot mourn their relatives. And uh, this has been uh, very, very hard, very hard. And this will probably leave a deeper trace uh, in our region, at least. It strikes me that one of the unbelievable contrasts that we are all living through is that for most of us, we are living in an incredible closeness and intimacy in our private lives with our families. And on the other side, there's a group of people who are brought into a hospital and say goodbye to their spouse or partner, and their kids are all over the world isolated. They spend two weeks in a hospital and then they die in what might be called the void. And yeah. the last two weeks are completely cut off from other human contact besides their doctors or nurses. And that distinction is one of the hardest things to, to wrap your heads around today. Yes, yes, you are right. Exactly. There is this um, 
strong uh, opposition, uh, strong distinction. Uh, we are living very close to each other, whereas some others are so suddenly separated. One thing that really uh, impressed me a few weeks ago in the province of Bergamo, which is uh, not far from here, but um, is one of the provinces of northern Italy that was strongly hit. And um, so there was a priest attending to the coffins of uh, many elderly people that had died. And he would hold um, above the coffin, so to say, the mobile phone so that the relatives could talk to their dead through the phone. I thought that was uh, symbolically very strong, you know, because no matter how uh, secularized we are, no matter how believers or non-believers, this uh, separation uh, that takes place, the death of somebody, is something that we still need to mark, so to say, you know, we still need to put a sign there that before there was a life and now there was, there is a death. So this mobile phone with the voice is the coronavirus time type of mourning that still is still needed. Yeah, it's, it's chilling. And there's both sides. There's the relatives who need to say in some sense their farewell. And then there's this sense of dying alone in a void that very much reminds me of the idea of the unknown soldiers in war who die anonymously and are never even identified. And the idea of the tomb of the unknown soldier that Arendt talks about as well in the human yeah. condition, the loss of, loss of significance or meaning in the world that is to die anonymously. Yeah. You've been teaching, and, and I know you've been teaching a course on, on democracy, looking at Arendt and her connection to ancient democratic practice. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've been teaching and writing about and, and how that's making you, helping you or, or encouraging you to think about this crisis and what it means in our world? While I started my online teaching for the first time in my life, uh, I was teaching um, a course on uh, Arendt and ancient uh, democracy or the reading that Arendt does of uh, ancient democracy. And uh, I connected Arendt's reading with some uh, historians, uh, contemporary historians uh, on ancient Greece, uh, trying to see if her vision which is very imaginative to some extent of ancient democracy could be sustained also by other readings. And so I must say that to some extent to abstract from the present situation and go back to the ancients uh, was a sort of a cure for the soul. Huh? And uh, my students also felt it uh, that way because when I had feedback from them, they told me that also for them it has been helpful. We have been reading, for example, the tragedy by Aeschylus, I think you say in English. I never mm -hmm. know the pronunciation. Uh, the suppliant, uh, um, where according to the tradition or according to uh, also contemporary historians, in that tragedy is the first time where the word democracy appears in ancient texts. And uh, it's also a tragedy that's very interesting because uh, it uh, shows for the first time uh, the vote by hands raised, uh, or um, keirotonia, how it's called in Greek. 
So we, you know, we worked with the text, we worked with the with the tragedy, see how Greeks represented themselves in democracy, and we uh, we tried to combine that with Arendt's reading of the ancients and uh, how much she gives uh, importance to democracy, not much in terms of a majority rule, but uh, as isonomia, which is a participatory experience. You know, uh, isonomia is rather taking part in the government of the police rather than mere democracy as being the vote of the majority. So we worked on these different meanings of democracy and isonomia. And uh, um, my idea, uh, or at least uh, the wager of the course, was trying to see if there is something original or originary in democracy. So whether democracy is not only a practice of government uh, or a system of government, but whether instead democracy can also be something that pertains to the human in, in an original sense, that we want freedom and equality together. And this is, I think, the message, at least in my reading, the message that Arendt carries out in a reading of the Greeks, you know? This idea that uh, you need a space to appear and to act with others. And that space is what makes life meaningful, basically. You've spoken uh, in your work of the thrill of democracy. Maybe you could say a little bit about that. And and also, are there any examples that really speak to you from either Greeks (laughs) or from the modern period that speak to what you call the thrill of democracy? Well, this is very interesting, and this is something I would like to write about if I ever find a way to concentrate in this situation. But you see, in Aeschylus tragedy, when the people raise their hands to vote, which is basically a vote in favor of welcoming to the city of Argos uh, a group of women who are escaping from Egypt. So basically, the city accepts migrant women that ask for help. And they accept that by this hand vote by hands raised. And the Greek text says that at some point the air vibrates of right hands. There is this sort of vibration which you could also translate with with a thrill, with a sort of physical effect of the fact that the arms raised uh, in favor of this democratic decision are sort of excited by being all of the same opinion, so to say. So this dimension of the thrill of the sort of the emotional, even physical aspect of uh, being together and voting for something that is right, so to say, expressed by the text in Greek with this strong reference to the bodily dimension. And it's interesting that also Judith Butler in her book uh, notes towards a performative theory of assembly at some point talks about the thrill of being part of an assembly, you know, the thrill of being together in a square, in a demonstration. And so this puzzles me. This is exactly the topic I would like to work on. And I've been working on also, you know, Roger, on the theme of public happiness, which is another Arendtian theme. 
But because I think, and this maybe takes us back to the present, I think that we need to recover somehow some frames that uh, conceptual but also imaginative frames that enable us to say something positive about the world. You know what I mean? I mean, it's a very general idea, but we need to recover uh, ways of saying our being together that does not refer always to war, conflict, struggle, but also ways of saying our being together that gives us some type of communal experience that we can share in a positive sense, you know. So this relationality we need to give uh, voice to, and we have to give voice to this relationality in positive, in generative terms. And in some sense, I think this thrill of democracy can can be of help. I mean, for me, it's a challenging line of research. So I think that's fascinating, Olivia. And I guess I have two questions that come right to mind. One is, are there modern experiences in your life or that you find meaningful that are in some sense exemplary of what you call the thrill of democracy? And then secondly, as you're teaching this course about the physical vibrating of the hands in Greece online in Zoom, how do you think about the way that our increasing dependence on online public engagement can or cannot offer what you would call a positive frame, a, a way to, to speak about the world. Is this, is this something that can translate online in your mind or is it, does it need a kind of physicality outside of the, the web? Well, to answer your first question, um, I think that we all, when we do theory, we all in one way or the other start from our own experiences that can be positive experiences, negative experiences, but there's always a base, uh, a starting point that's somewhere in our lived experience. So, for example, this idea of working on the thrill of democracy, or let's call it the public happiness topic that I've been dealing with in the past years, I realized afterwards that it all started when I uh, was actively engaged in a, in a women's movement in Italy in 2011, uh, when we had a very big activism and demonstrations against uh, the Berlusconi government. And uh, interestingly enough, 2011 is a year full of events, you know, full of public demonstrations around the world with different aims and different uh, contents. But um, for me, that experience exactly of, of being together in a square and uh, experience a, a dimension that goes beyond your own self. You know, it's a sort of experience of transcendence, which is not a religious experience. You, you, you feel that you count more than a single individual because you're a part of something that is bigger. And uh, um, this is a, I think this is a thrill. Of course, it, it can also be a dangerous thrill because we know that this fusing in a mass is something very dangerous that has been uh, witnessed in totalitarian movements. But I think that we need 
to be able to discern, to distinguish these two types of thrills, so to say. There is a democratic thrill and there is a totalitarian thrill. So for me, that was an experience that contributed very much to make me take this line of research that I'm doing now. And I think in this sense, Arendt is a great uh, example because uh, experience is always the starting point of thinking and there's no way of going out of that. There's no way of going out of that. Olivia, Mm -hmm. before you move on to the second question, can I just ask a something? So you said something, I think, very important and yet difficult near the end of what you just answered, which is that we need to distinguish between a a democratic thrill and a totalitarian thrill. And yet, as Arendt insisted that we remind ourselves, Hitler was elected democratically and that there was popular support. Her indictment of Eichmann even at the end was not that he obeyed, but that by obeying he supported and obedience and support are the same, she says, in such yeah, a situation. Yeah. You know, even someone like Tocqueville, who Arendt builds much of her thinking on in many ways, says, you know, in small communities where there's popular rule and democracy, these are going to be um, often uncouth and they're going to often lead to repression and racism and other things. But that's the price we pay for self-government and freedom, Tocqueville says. I think one of the things that's so interesting about Arendt is she's, she seems quite willing to take the risk of some totalitarian and racist and oppressive communities because she thinks that that's part of the risk of democracy. And the way, one way she sort of attempts to address that is to say, We should never let there be a centralized power. There have to be multiple democracies, multiple federal, small, local democracies. And the hope is that by creating many of them, no one that becomes oppressive will ever overwhelm the others, but that you can't expect that the freedom of democracy will emerge without some sort of pockets of oppression and totalitarianism. Is that right? Uh, and, And how does that fit with your idea that we need to distinguish the totalitarian and democratic thrills that you talk about? Well, I think uh, you are right, Roger, in saying that she takes the risk. And I think what is very important to keep in mind is that uh, we have lost, or for that matter, we as modern probably never knew the political as such, the political in terms of participatory experience As she says when she quotes uh, Herodotus, neither rule nor being ruled, you know, this idea of uh, self-rule as something that is, there's not someone that orders and some other that obeys. So this notion of the political, we have never known, we have never experienced. The risk uh, that you're talking about, I think, has to do with this, with uh, a sort of experiencing democracy or democratic practices. And again, as I said, not democracy in terms of majority rule, but democracy in terms of participating. So we need to experience that. The more we experience it, the better. The more we experience it, the more literate we become 
with democracy. You know what I mean? There's sort of democratic illiteracy in our culture because representative democracy, to many extents, is a depoliticizing system uh, where someone rules and some others are being ruled. And this, of course, there's nothing wrong with that because it's the best that we could do in, in big nations. But this has contributed to uh, make us go totally private, to make us go totally careless of what is going on at the level of power. So I think that to take the risk, to take the risk is exactly the point, you know? And I think she uh, is so important in this sense because uh, her way of framing uh, the political and also her way of doing theory, it's not a philosophy, but she's doing theory of the political, is always sort of faithful to the contingent element of politics. You know, politics or the political is not a stage that once you've reached, you are okay for the rest of, of the time of the world or the time of life. Politics is a realm of change, is a realm of novelty. There's no system of government that uh, reaches the perfect state. This is why she didn't like Plato, for that matter. So... I think she's faithful to the political insofar as the political, and I think Arendt teaches that to us, the political is always something that presents us new risks all the time. There's no riskless moment. I think that's fantastic. And I think what you're saying is the idea that we need to relearn or become literate again in the risk of engaging in politics it strikes me as, as absolutely right. And yet what is probably most difficult right now. And this brings us to the second question, which is that as we more and more begin, yeah. I mean, one, one has to ask how this is going to impact us over the next decade or, or century. Oh, yeah. I mean, is yeah. this the beginning of the end of a vibrant physical public square? Yeah. And what does that mean? So I'm wondering what your thoughts about teaching a class on the democratic thrill online have been. Yeah, well, um, let me just tell you this first, Roger, because I went back to read Arendt's biography and uh, I found this uh, wonderful quotation by Heinrich Blücher, um, Arendt's husband. When he was teaching at Bard at the beginning of the 50s or in the mid-50s, his students were very impressed by him, by his ways, by his provocative tone. And there is this sentence that the students report that Blücher used to say, and I think it's perfect for today. And the sentence is, pessimism is for cowards, optimism is for fools. I love this sentence. I think it's uh, excellent. Uh, and I think it's always useful also for this moment because I sincerely cannot stand, and this is my own personal idiosyncrasy, but I cannot stand the pessimism that is spreading uh, around also in Italy. Not, not necessarily the pessimism towards what is going to happen, but also the pessimism towards the restriction measures, uh, 
the limitation of our personal freedom. There's been a big debate in Italy about this. But this type of pessimism, this type of criticism doesn't help us go any further. And of course, we also must not be uh, totally optimistic either, 100%. We would be fools. But it is exactly in this, you know, in between, between pessimism and optimism that we need to stay and we need to also uh, be ready for change, be ready for change because things will change, but not possibly submit to this change. And again, there is another sentence by, it's a sentence by Karl Jaspers, but Arendt puts it at the beginning of the origins of totalitarianism as a quotation. We need to be entirely present, you know, neither succumb to the past nor to the future. So I think this also, this other Arendtian piece, uh, which is not an Arendt sentence, but uh, of her master, Kaliaspers, is very useful. So to go back to your question, teaching of democracy in an online course, Uh, has been to some extent a little bit, uh, as I said, uh, a little bit um, an abstraction, abstraction in a past that sort of was sort of a comfort zone uh, to some extent. And of course, we always, uh, you know, when we think, as Aaron says, we are in a nowhere. So in that sense, being online or not being online didn't make a big difference, I must say, after a while, because after a while you get used to the medium but again it was very important for my students uh, that we had a final uh, zoom meeting because i was not teaching with them in presence i would record my lectures and i would listen to them but then i we had a final meeting on zoom and they were all so happy to see each other and to see me and they all wrote me afterwards saying thank you for this last lesson that we had on Zoom so we could talk, we could express our feelings. It's so very important. So this just to say that um, we need to appear to each other, uh, as Aaron says, we have this urge to appear. We might be able to do it for a while in a distance, but uh, from a distance, but I think that... uh, uh, it is very, very difficult to think that we will not be able to appear to each other in person anymore. And I hope that will not be the case. We will probably have to relearn the ways of our being together in public spaces, that at least for some time, I think. You know? the social distancing, even if we can maybe be outside, but there will still be some necessary rules for uh, for our uh, relating to each other. And so I think that uh, bodily incarnated in-presence dimension cannot be done away with. It's a necessary outcome of any type of virtual or virtual relationship. So it's interesting because, you know, um, I'm teaching online as well. And I had a conversation with, um, I don't know if you know him, Professor Uday Mehta last mm-hmm. week, which is on the same podcast series that your conversation will be on. And I've been teaching, but not, I don't teach as you either have been or, or did during this uh, with lectures that are recorded. We've been doing live classes and uh, 
while the conversations can happen, I've been very much struck by the, the loss of being able to sense the room, to feel who's alive in the room and who's fading. Mm-hmm. And uh, I find it, uh, it's difficult. And, and while, you know, I, I teach a little, I teach in a style in which we often read quotes mm-hmm. and then talk about them. I can still do that on Zoom, but it's, it's much harder to really sit there and look people in the eye and ask them to think over and over again about a quote. Uh, I'm wondering, you, you lecture, which I think, you know, I, I think, as I've said, there are some parts of teaching that might get better. Um, you know, my son is 10, and he finds learning math online actually maybe more fun and better than he did in class. You know, there's certain things that can be taught very well online. When you were giving lectures and recording them, how did that experience work? I mean, to me, I, you know, I, never, I don't usually purely lecture. Um, I always figure things out as I'm going on. Does the lecturing into a camera, does it work for you? And I'm really interested in that because uh, it's not something I've done much of. Well, certainly it's a different job than to go in class. It's a different job and, and requires much more work, <laughs> um, much more preparatory work, because I sort of had a, a script, more or less. And, uh, and I follow that script. And I also sometimes have quotation, read the quotations, comment the quotations, because also with the Greek uh, and the, the tragedy was necessary to do that. But... Um, yeah, uh, so it's a different job, but also I think at some point, um, at least for me, but I don't know if maybe a <laughs> sort of narcissistic personality, but at, at some point for me, I would sort of imagine the audience of the students and I could uh, have a remote dialogue with them, even if I was just recording. And also my students told me afterwards that they were really happy with this because they could listen and listen again, you know, and go back and so get a better understanding of what I was saying. And uh, for example, we have many students who are working students in, you know, in Italian public universities, you have a lot of people that maybe are enrolled but cannot attend classes. So they were very happy about this online lecturing because they could attend even if they were working students. But I agree with you. I agree with you that certain types of teaching can perhaps be better in this form uh, and certain other type of teaching cannot. In fact, I had to change my course. It was supposed to be some kind of seminar where the students would present their own work and we would discuss it. But then at the time when the emergency started, I couldn't do this. But if we have to go on with this, I will try to learn how to be more interactive also through Zoom. I wonder if maybe your approach is better suited to, to Zoom. I mean, I, as I listen to you, I think maybe it's what we should all be doing. I don't know. It takes more work. <laughs> so I, I applaud yeah. you for doing that work, as you, as you said. <laughs> You mentioned the emergency and the catastrophe that we're suffering, and a catastrophe is in yeah. many ways an overturning. Um, yeah. As we come to an end, because I want to let you go, how do you imagine this catastrophe playing out, and what could change for the better 
or for the worse. Don't be a fool or a coward. Don't be an optimist mm. or a pessimist. But as you said earlier, we are all getting used to this. They're sort of normalizing ourselves to it. What are your, what are your fears or hopes um, going forward? My fears are that uh, perhaps people will not really understand uh, thoroughly what this means, that people would tend to go back to normal and this going back to normal will never be as normal as before. So we would find ourselves in a change world, but sort of with a previous uh, attitude. And in that sense, that is for me a fear because uh, previous attitudes cannot but be worse in a new situation. And just to give you an example, you know, this Things will not be back to normal in terms of social distance uh, norms. That is for sure, I think, at least for a year or so. And um, I fear that uh, fears that have been already present in the population, in many people here in Italy, towards migrants, towards uh, people that don't uh, necessarily comply to the general norm, that the attitudes towards these people will be worst. I don't know if I'm clear enough, but uh, expressions of social hate or social discrimination would become stronger against uh, certain categories of people. That's, that's one of my fears, because that's something that can always happen, you know. Uh, we have witnessed uh, in these past weeks uh, a double attitude, especially here in Italy, an attitude of a uh, behavior that is caring, that is mutual help, that is mutual understanding, uh, the singing from the balconies uh, and all of that, which was warming the heart. And on the other side, you also saw immediate compliance to norms, to the social distanciation norms. But this compliance was not just a compliance for the good of the well-being, but it was sort of uh, assumed uh, with a vengeance, so to say, with a, with a, with an attitude that you could see that has, and here I'm saying something strong, but a fascist overtone, you know, like uh, obeying to the rules for the sake of obeying and uh, discriminating harshly those who do not obey, those who do not have a mask, those that go for a jog. There has been and there is in Italian society this double nuances, so to say, that uh, depends very much on how we will be able, uh, as I said before, to promote this positive frame on how we will be able to propose them and make them work in society, whether we will lean on one or the other side of these two attitudes that I just described. And let me just conclude with this, Roger, because a crucial part of what is going to happen here in Italy, but I think in Europe uh, in general, but especially in Italy and in the southern European countries, much of what will happen depends on the European response, you know, European response, not only as the European Commission, but also it will depend on how much the 27 countries will respond to the situation and will understand 
the need for a mutual support, the mutual support that there is a new compact that needs to be made among European countries because we're going towards a what it's called a terra incognita, an unknown land. We're going towards an unknown land. And exactly because we're going towards what is unknown, we need to be reciprocally supportive. We need to make uh, mutual promises of support. Otherwise, we're not going anywhere. And the response of the people of Southern European countries, we don't know what it can be because the situation is uh, is very hard. And I don't know if you know much about what's going on exactly at these moments in Europe in order to decide whether there's going to be a what they call a mutualization of debt, of the European debt. Right. So uh, my, understand, my understanding is that there's a, a big question of whether the countries that are being deeply affected by this, as you said, mostly in Southern Europe, will be forced to take out debt and be bailed out on harsh terms, like what happened in 2009 and 10, or whether there will be some sort of European bonds that create, um, that allow for the entire European Union to pay for the costs of um, what's happening in France, Spain, and Italy, and other countries. And it strikes me that the way you're putting it is quite provocatively Arendtian and, and wonderful, a question of mutualization, not of uh, centralization, not of forming more you know, of a United States of Europe per se, but of uh, a mutual pact of support amongst federated European Union members uh, is what I'm hearing from you. And, yeah. uh, but that strikes me as something that's quite controversial, especially in the northern countries. So I don't know how that works, but uh, I hope for all your sakes that something along those yeah. lines can happen. It's, uh, yeah, I hope so too, because it, um, I think that our future will depend very much on that. Uh, our future, as, as not only as a nation, but as a continent with all, you know, with all the consequences of uh, either a united Europe or a fragmented and possibly even more fragmented uh, Europe. So I think this is a moment that's very important. And, uh, you know, it's nothing, it's nothing comparable even to the crisis of 2008 and 2009, because they say that uh, national, how do you call it, the national gross product will be in Europe, uh, in the Eurozone, minus four, minus five, minus six points. So uh, something that will affect all. There's no other way that humans can uh, go towards the unknown than by sustaining each other. You know, <laughs> there's no other way. There's no other way. Well, that's a, a wonderful way to end, which is to say we, we hope that out of this catastrophe comes a, a new vision of, of Europe based on a yeah. mutual compact and passionate drive to making covenants, as you say, something Arendt quotes in The Human Condition. Thank you very much, Olivia, for talking with me today. This was a lot of fun. Very interesting. Thank you, Roger. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this conversation with Professor Olivia Corraldo. If you enjoyed listening to this edition of the Amor Mundi podcast, please visit us online at hac.bard.edu 
and click subscribe to find podcasts, original writing, videos, and more, all delivered twice a week to your inbox. It's bold and provocative thinking in the spirit of Hannah Arendt, and it's free. To learn how to become a member of the Hannah Arendt Center and support our work, just click on Join HAC.